Amen. Mark chapter number 12 is where we are today. Mark chapter number 12. Man, after all of that, if it wasn't for the Word, I'd say let's just go to the house. You know, I mean, how do you follow that? Well, the only thing you can do with that, follow that with, is something better. And the only thing I know that's better is God's Word. So here we go, Mark chapter 12 is where we are today, continuing this journey through the book of Mark. We're going to pick up in verse number 18 of Mark chapter 12. Remember, this is the last few days of Jesus Christ, of the life of Jesus Christ. He's only probably at this point two at the most three days out from the cross. And the religious leaders, the scribes, the Herodians, the Pharisees, today the Sadducees, everybody is taking their best shot at Him. I started to have Evan play, hit me with your best shot this morning. (laughs) Because that's what they're doing. Uh, They are taking their very best shot in order to try to trap Him to have some charges to bring because they've already made up their mind they've got to do away with this guy. Because he is dangerous to us. So we pick up today in Mark chapter 18 with somebody else taking a swing, the Sadducees. Verse number 18 says, some Sadducees. And Mark felt it necessary to identify these folk for us so we would know exactly who they are. So he says, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning Him saying, Teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man, a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no children, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. So there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You, my friends are greatly mistaken, to put it lightly. Well, there's this old adage among preachers, and I find that it is true. The old adage says, if you want to have a crowd, preach on sex or the end times. And if you want to have a really good crowd, preach on sex in the end times. And you know, that's, that's kind of what this text is all about today. It's about sex in the end times. 
And it was hard for me to resist a lot of creative titles. I mean, I had to call Dr. John and say, is this okay? How about if I preach Sunday morning on sex that's out of this world? <laughs> but then I got to thinking about it and thought, well, I can't do that because it just doesn't exist. And I think that's what Jesus says here as He talks to these guys. But nonetheless, that is what we're dealing with as the subject matter of this text as it comes to us from the misunderstanding of the Sadducees. But man, what a text this is. I mean, this is one of those texts where we get some insight into what happens when you die. And boy, aren't we grateful for texts like that. You know, here's a text that gives us great insight into other areas of life. So let's look at it from this perspective today. How can we go wrong? How can we go wrong and miss all of what this text holds for us and miss all of what God intends for you and I to experience and possess in this journey of abundant life which He's provided for us in Jesus Christ? How can we go wrong? Well, this text answers that question for us and it tells us that we go wrong when we do not know, here you go, the Word of God. And you say, Pastor, that's a mighty small blank on your outline for such a long answer. Well, here you go. Let me give you some theological shorthand. W-O-G. The Word of God. How is it that you go wrong and how is it that I go wrong? How do we go wrong and make mistakes? And it's one reason and one reason only. Because we do not know the Word of God. Now, hey, the only thing that has the ability to keep me straight is God's Word. The only thing that has the ability to keep you straight is God's Word. The only thing that has the ability to keep us on the straight and narrow is the Word of God. So I want to submit a statement to you. And every now and then I like to put st uh, statements like this in my outlines. I call them zingers. I want to get your attention and get you to thinking. I think every life mistake is connected to this. Every life mistake. Now let me give you some definition there for a little while because a life mistake, I'm not talking about when you make a mistake doing calculus. That's not a life mistake. A life mistake is, is a mistake that you make that kind of turns your life in a direction that is away from the fullness of abundant life that God wants you and wants me to experience. You ever done anything like that? You ever taken a step in the wrong direction? You ever made a mistake and you just know it wasn't taking you, or, or, it wasn't taking you closer to God, but it was taking you away from God? You see, that is what I'm defining here as a life mistake. And you see, that's what biblical counseling is all about. Biblical counseling is taking people whose life has fallen apart. And by the way, that's what happens when you make a mistake like this. A life mistake will ultimately cause life to come unraveled, not work like it's supposed to be. So biblical counseling does this. It takes somebody who's sitting in, in the hot seat or, or on the counseling couch 
whose life is coming unraveled at the seams and you try to figure out where they went wrong. Just what step did they take? What deviation from the pattern, from the road map, God's Word, did they take? And by the way, this was part of my doctoral dissertation. Uh, I tried to, and I did, I, I tried to show that, that every, every problem that we have in local church work today is because and connected to a deficiency in our understanding of God's Word. Every mistake we make really has a doctrinal source as the problem. We do not understand something the way we ought to. So when I submitted the title and the prospectus for my dissertation, it was this. Overcoming Dormancy and Discipleship with Christ-Centered Trinitarian Proclamation. (laughs) Just the reactions to that. And that was the same reaction that some of my fellow students had in the doctoral seminar when they went, wait, what? Run that by me again? I thought I better bring my title down a little bit. But nonetheless, that's what I was trying to prove in about... 300 pages of doctoral work. So here let me submit this to you again now and see, if, see, see what you think about it. Run this through your theological filters this week. Every life mistake is connected to one of two things. Number one, to ignorance of the Word of God. Ignorance of the Word of God. Do you understand why it's so important to place yourself under the teaching and preaching of God's Word because it just might prevent you from making a major life mistake. And if not a major life mistake, maybe a little misstep here, a little misstep there. Because normally we're not overwhelmed by making big mistakes but just by consistently making little ones. And here's why we make those little mistakes. The same reason these guys did. Look what Jesus did. Let me me read it for you again. Look what he says. He says, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? Because you do not know the Scriptures. So if they don't know know the Scriptures, no wonder they're so wrong. And he finishes up in verse number 27 by saying, You are greatly mistaken. So when we're ignorant of God's Word, here's what's going to happen. You will live by fabricated stories. Now did you see the story that they fabricated? Oh, they were so proud of themselves. They had used this on every other dummy in Jerusalem to back them into a corner. But they didn't know who they were dealing with when they pulled out their best shot and they gave this story that they had fabricated and used for years. It's a a form of argumentation known as reducing to the absurd. So they tried to take the resurrection and reduce it to the absurd. Here would have been my response. Notice what the story says. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and, uh, uh, but no children, his brother should marry. Th- this comes from Deuteronomy where Moses gave provision known as the liberate marriage. 
And he was making provision. So if a man died, his family name and all of the inheritance that he had would not just be washed away or lost, but that he would have a family or a progeny. So they use that. And here's what they come up with. Here's the fabricated story they come up with. A brother took a wife, verse number 20, died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. I would have stopped him right there and I would have said, my advice is that the fourth one not marry this woman. <laughs> I mean, how stupid do you have to be? This woman's done kill three of my brothers. She's a black widow. Let's just cut our losses right now. Nobody else is. So I'd have stopped them right there, right? But Jesus just let them go ahead and put the noose around their neck. But bottom line is they had this fabricated story that they had invented and made up with the express intent of trying to trap people who believed in this idea that they considered ludicrous, which was the resurrection. By the way, not only did the Sadducees not believe in a resurrection, they didn't believe in life after death at all, and they also didn't believe in angels. We know that because Scripture tells us that later on. So Jesus takes one swath and He takes care of every one of those things in His answer. He don't just straighten them out about the resurrection. He straightened them out about everything else. Let me get back to the flow. When people are ignorant of God's Word, they will live based on stories that they make up. Now can I just be honest with you? Do you know how many folk there are in Bonifay, Florida today that are as ignorant as a bag of rocks about God's Word. But they've somehow fabricated this story in their mind that when they stand before God after they die, that God's going to weigh up all the good and all the bad. And if the good outweighs the bad, then God's going to say, Oh, you did good. Come on in. Friend, that's a lie from the pit of hell. It's not biblical. You've made it up trying to pacify your own lack of knowledge of God's Word. And I'm telling you, if you don't know God's Word, you're going to live by a fairy tale that you've invented and that fairy tale is going to get your tail in a lot of hot water called hell. Don't do it. Our authority in life and for the life to come is one thing and one thing only and it's the sure foundation of God's solid Word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Now son, what are you building your life on? I don't want to live based on what somebody else thinks or some story that some philosopher has made up, but on thus saith the Lord. It's the solid rock. Now let me go a little bit farther. Every life mistake is connected, number one, to ignorance of the Word of God, But number two, it can also be connected to indifference to the Word of God. Now, can I just say, the Quilombolas in Brazil are ignorant of the Word because they don't have it. But I'm about to play in our wheelhouse here because you know what? We got it. Hey, we're happy to display it in our house, are we not? Put it right there on the coffee table. And every now and then when we're house cleaning, we have to come along with that big old feather and knock the dust off of it because we hadn't opened it in a while. Oh, we'll keep it by the nightstand. But are we so indifferent to it that we don't do nothing with it? So you see, here's our problem today. 
It's not so much ignorance of the Word as it is indifference to the Word. And we become indifferent to the Word when two things take place. When we fail to ingest the Word of God. When we fail to ingest. You know what that means? And the Bible talks about this a lot. The Bible gives examples in Jeremiah and the book of Revelation of folk eating the Word of God. Jesus comes along and He says this, My life verse, I've told Heather to put it on my tombstone. They might be engraving it sooner than we know, huh? Matthew 4, 4. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know what that means? That means God's word is just as important for our daily intake as is the lunch that we're going to eat when we get done here in a little while. It's just as important. So a failure to ingest will cause us to make great mistakes because that means the Word of God is here, but by golly, it's not impacting anything in my life. You see, when I ingest the Word, it means I take it in. It becomes a part of who I am. And if it's a part of who I am, that means I act in accordance with it because it is part of my makeup, it's a part of my DNA, and I'm going to do what God's Word says. Because it's a part of who I am. So you're indifferent to the Word, number one, when we fail to ingest God's Word. But number two, we also are indifferent to the Word when we fail to interact with the Word. When we fail to interact with it. And boy, I love this part of this message. You know why? Tony's about to finish up his master's degree. You need to go on, son. And I know you will. And earn your stripes and let them put that hood and that robe on you. But here's your doctoral dissertation. I'm giving it to you right now. On your very first day at Grace, here's your doctoral dissertation subject. That's pretty good service, isn't it? Here it is. The hermeneutic of Jesus Christ. Because in this text we see how Jesus handled the Old Testament. So isn't that cool? Man, if I want to emulate anybody's hermeneutic, it's Jesus. I want to know how he understood, how he applied, how he interacted with the Old Testament Scriptures because that will give me a great model to follow, will it not? So here we go. By the way, you can interact with God's Word because of a couple reasons. Number one, because it is alive. Have you ever noticed that about God's Word? You sit down with God's Word and you think you're reading it, but it's reading you. Huh? And the writer of the Hebrews tells us that. For God's Word is alive. It's active. God's Word is almost like somebody else because it is. Because when you read God's Word, the author of His Word, the Holy Spirit of God is right there. And it's an interactive dynamic. Well, what does this mean? How does this apply to my life? How do I incorporate this into who I am? And there's an interaction that goes on when you read God's Word. Hey, the problem with most of us, we read God's Word like we're reading the classified ads. Jesus didn't do that. He interacted with the Word because the Word is alive. But there's something else. Here's the next word I want you to write down. We interact with it because of what we can derive from it. Now look what Jesus derived. Now by derive, I, let me just say that, that, that derivatives don't just exist in trigonometry. Derivatives exist in hermeneutics as well. 
And Jesus models a derivative for us. Because notice this passage of Scripture in Exodus chapter 3 with the burning bush. It explicitly has nothing to say about the resurrection, does it? It does not. But let's look at Jesus' hermeneutic. We'll be able to know more about the hermeneutic of Jesus after Tony writes his dissertation, right? (laughs) So here we go. The hermeneutic of Jesus. He interacts with that text and based on what Yahweh said to Moses, he formulates a rock-solid doctrine of the resurrection of the believer. My! Tell me his hermeneutic isn't worth studying and following. Notice what he does. He takes them back into the Old Testament and he reads this passage about God being the God where God says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he's about to put them old boys to shame because guess what? Tell me they weren't ignorant of the word or indifferent to the word. The only part of of, of, of the Word of God that the Sadducees accepted was the first five books. That is, the book of the Pentateuch. You could throw the Psalms away. You could throw the prophets away. You can throw the writings away. When you're dealing with a Sadducee, you've got five books to deal with. So where is Jesus going to go within the short context of five books and formulate a sound doctrine of the resurrection of the people of God? Interesting to me, he goes to Exodus chapter 3 and he does a great job with it. Hold that thought right there. How do we go wrong? We go wrong when we do not know the Word of God. But number two, get this now, I want you to see this. These two are connected. If the first one happens, the second one is automatically going to happen. Here we go. When we do not know the Word of God, we cannot will not know the God of the Word. Do you see the connection forming already? If you do not know the Word of God, hear me, you cannot know the God of the Word. Now I want you to hear me real good. The Lord God has revealed Himself to mankind in what's known as the Bible. Now certainly... You can see God by looking at the stars, but you can't know Him well enough to be saved by looking at the stars. So God has given us not just the general revelation that you can see in creation by deducing that this human body that I have is far too complex just to have evolved over billions of years from a pool of primordial ooze like some idiots say. But there is a designer behind this masterpiece as it is with the whole universe. God's not only given us general revelation, but look, He's given us what's known as special revelation. Special revelation. And that is the Bible. And here's what the Bible is. The Bible is 66 books contained in what has been affirmed throughout church history is what's known as the canon. Canon simply means a measuring stick. This is what everything is measured by. It's the canon of Scripture. And it's not 140 books. It's not 67 books. 
It's 66 books from Genesis to Revelation that contain God's revelation of Himself to me and to you. That's what it is. So you understand, if you don't know this book, then it logically follows that there's no way that you can know God. And look here, I listen to folk tell me all kind of stuff that they fabricated about what they think about God. You know what the only problem is? You're right. It's a God whom they fabricated. And get me, there is this God-sized hole in the heart of every person. You can feel that with the God of the Word or your psyche is going to imagine a God of your own design and you're going to feel it. And so many people want to tell me when I preach how God has revealed Himself to man and this is who God is and they'll say, well, I just don't believe God's like that. Well, bless your pointed little head. You better start getting into the Word and reading, finding out that He is like that. You know what I mean? We're not measuring by your emotions or your feelings. We're not measuring by your subjective experiences. Folk, listen to me. Let me put on my professor hat this morning, okay? This is MI205 with Dr. Allen. The, Christ, the history of Christian missions. There was only one, in my opinion, only one global missions movement that has happened in modern history. It was by some folk known as, who were some of my former students? The Moravians. That's right. Everybody shouted me down at one time. The Moravians. There's a lot of their DNA in Grace Church. The Moravians would send more people, Dane, than they kept. You were the oddball if you got saved in a Moravian church and you stayed rather than going. They were setting the world on fire. The rate in the Moravian movement for missionaries was like there was, there was, there was one missionary for like every ten church members. You want to run those numbers with the Southern Baptist Convention today? Huh? It's like one missionary for every 75,000 people. Do you see why I say they were getting it on? And here's what happened. The leader of the Moravians married a charismatic woman. She took him off into the charismatic realm of experiences, not God's Word, but experiences and feelings and mysticism. And watch me. It stopped the world missions movement dead in its tracks. You tell me living your life on something other than God's authoritative Word isn't dangerous? It has the ability to sink ships to derail world mission movements. Do you understand why at Grace, as a former missionary and as the director of a mission agency today, I refuse to let that junk come into Grace Church? Because the people on the other side of the world who have never heard are too valuable to God for us to sit around here letting our experiences and our feelings and our emotions get us off track with taking the gospel to them for the glory of God. That's why Grace Church is so committed to God's Word. So anything else is suicide. It's dangerous. And we're not going there. We're going to stay on the solid rock. 
Now here we go. Notice what I say. If you don't know God's Word, you cannot know the God of the Word. Three things and I'm done. If you don't know God's Word, then you will not know that He is ultimately powerful. Check out what Jesus said. He said, you were mistaken because you don't know the Scriptures. Or what else did He say? Or the power of God, verse number 24. Now, again, run this through your theological filters this week. Is not this the reason for every sin that we commit? For every mistake that we make? Check it out. If we don't know the power of God, that He is ultimately powerful, two things. Number one, you will assume. Now, I don't have to tell you what that word means, do I? Huh? Because everybody here is big boys and girls. We know what it means to assume. We know what happens when you assume, especially in the realm of theology. So here we go. You will assume, number one, that His future is like your present. Did you hear me? You're going to assume that the future that God has for us is just like the present. And you see, that was the problem with the, with the Sadducees. They thought if there is any afterlife, if there is any resurrection, then it's got to be just like this present reality. And the reason they thought that is because they didn't know that our great God is powerful enough to do away with this one and create another one that is completely different. Huh? Boy, I want to tell you, I love listening to country music, but I want to tell you there are going to be no dirt roads in heaven. Huh? That's assuming that the other side is like this one. And can I tell you, there's not going to be any cabins on 10 acres in heaven. It's different from this. And the Sadducees were assuming that over there is just like right here. That's why they asked the question. The question ultimately is this. Okay, in the resurrection, she married all... I mean, in this life, she married all seven of them. So over there... Whose wife is she going to be? Which one of the seven? You know, and Jesus got to be singing, Oh, dear God in heaven. Folks say there's no dumb questions. Yes, there are. <laughs> Some folks say there's no dumb questions, just dumb people who ask them. Maybe both fit here. I don't know. But you know, this is their best shot. And guys, if this is their best shot, look, just calm down. We don't have anything to worry about. You know what I'm saying? And the reason they were mistaken is because they didn't know the Scripture. Because they didn't know the Scripture, they didn't know God. They assumed that everything in the future is going to be based on the model of how it is in this life. And I want to tell you, it's not that way. And there's a lot of folk like this. I was watching Good Morning America not the other day, and there was this idiot on there. And here's what he's talking about. He, he's one of these idiots talks about human sexuality, because that's what this is about. They just won't know who's going to have conjugal rights with this woman in heaven. There was this idiot on Good Morning America. He's supposed to be this sex therapist or whatever that is. And he made a statement. Here's what he said. He said, folk want to know if there's going to be sex in heaven. Well, yes, there's going to be sex in heaven, he says. I wanted to say, you heretic, you're ignorant of the word. I was hollering at the TV. See, most folk holler at the TV during football games. I holler at the TV during the news. You idiot. And this is what he said. He said, by the way, if there's not sex in heaven, I don't want to go. I holler at TV. That's why I said, you ain't got to worry about that one, bud. 
handled. You're not going to win. That's right. But here's the thing. He's thinking just like these Sadducees. These Sadducees are thinking, you know, what's the greatest pleasure on earth? And their mind immediately goes to sensual pleasure. So that's what the next life is going to be like. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, you're mistaken. He says, because when, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but get this, are like angels in heaven. You're not going to become an angel. And again, these country songs about people dying and getting their wings, that's another script. That's a fabricated story. It's not God's Word. You are always a human being made in the image of God, redeemed by the blood of the Son of God, and you carry that identity throughout all eternity. Only with a little bit more dignity than we do here, huh? He says, you're going to be like the angels in heaven. And what's he talking about? Hey, angels don't procreate. They don't. There's the same number of angels today as there were on the day God created them. They don't procreate. And he's getting at again this, this thing of, 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 how shall I say it? Uh, somebody throw me a word. Of, 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 of conjugal rights and privileges and pleasures. There we go. I think we can use the word conjugal, can't we? I mean, I conjugate verbs all the time. Here's just in a different sense. Conjugal. And these boys thought, you know, there's going to be that type of conjugal relationship in the resurrection. But can I say to you, the future that God has for you and me when we close our eyes in death is so much better than this. It is so unlike this. Hear me. It's so far up the totem pole till you take your greatest conjugal pleasure in this life and compare it to that and it's going to make it seem like a migraine headache. As a matter of fact, men, that's why women have headaches so much, I think. They're just preparing for the next life. All right? Y'all didn't get me on that one. Here we go. Notice what the Bible says. (laughs) The Bible says when we do not know the Word of God... We cannot know the Word of God. We will not know that He is ultimately powerful. You'll assume that His future is like your present, and it's not. You will assume, number two, that your problems are bigger than His plans. Hey, they had devised a problem. They had come up with what they thought was the ultimate theological conundrum. They thought they had a problem that Jesus couldn't solve. And if God can't solve this problem, then certainly He wouldn't put Himself in a position of creating that problem by having a resurrection. So you see, they're trying to do away with anything about life after death. So can I just ask you a question? Is your God bigger than your problems? Or do we want to lay down and belly up every time something comes along that presents itself as an obstacle? How big is your God? If you don't know the Word of God, you'll not know the God of the Word. You'll not know that He's ultimately powerful. But number two, you'll not know that He's eternally personal. He's eternally personal. Now can I get down to some good preaching here? Notice what Jesus said. Here's His hermeneutic again. 
I am the God, verse number 26, of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Get what he didn't say. He didn't say, I was Abraham's God. He didn't say, I was Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He said, I am. Now here's Jesus' hermeneutic. Here's how he gets those derivatives from God's Word. Here's how he establishes a rock-solid biblical principle. He said, I am. That's present tense. That present tense verb means an action started and it continues indefinitely. It goes on forever and ever and ever. He said, I am. And the deduction, the derivative that Jesus makes is that God would not have said that when He said it, which was hundreds of years after the death of all of those men. He would not have said it if those men were not with Him in a conscious existence at that very moment. So let me tell you something. Here's what happens when you die. The body says for believers... To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Write this statement down. I've given it all to you, but one word. Nothing terminates a relationship that God initiates. Did you hear me? Nothing terminates a relationship that God initiates. Now who was it that initiated the relationship with Abraham? Was it Abraham? Was he in a church service one day and an evangelist told him, Son, if you'll just bow your head and close your eyes and repeat this prayer right after me. No. He was in the land of Ur, living a, a, a life totally separated, devoid and ignorant of God, and God invaded his world and found him and initiated a relationship. Just like he did with me just like He does with you. And hear me, nothing terminates a relationship that God initiates. Not deficiencies, hear me, not deficiencies. Do you see where I'm going with this? Have you ever read the biography of these men in the book of Genesis? They were jacked up just like me. Abraham gave his wife away to save his own neck. He went away from God living in Egypt and paid the price for it the rest of his life because of the seeds that were sown in his life there. Isaac, the same way Jacob was a, was a trickster, was a shyster, was a shady businessman. And look at this. God says, hundreds of years after their death, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, indicating that they are with me right now in a conscious, living relationship because I am eternally personal. And if I establish a relationship with you in time, it will endure throughout all eternity because He is the one who maintains it. Huh? So if it was up to me, I couldn't keep it for five minutes. But like Tony said, there's a little boy running around inside of me. I just can't go five minutes without having a conversation with him about doing something we ought not do. You know what I'm saying? Nothing terminates a relationship that he initiates, not deficiencies. You can't mess this up. Number two, not death. 
Death didn't stop it for these guys. Death can't take you out of a relationship with God. God just uses death as a ministering servant, so says the writer of the Hebrews, to usher His people into His presence. Listen to what Paul says. For who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Woo! Son, ain't nothing going to terminate a relationship that God initiates. Can I just say to you, I'm sorry if I hurt anybody's feelings. But this old charismatic crap about you can be saved today and lose it tomorrow is heresy. Heresy. It's not biblical. Nothing will cause your relationship to terminate. Nothing. If it does, it's because you were saved by the wrong God. Because this God of the Bible, so says the Scripture... It's so powerful that nothing can separate us from Him. Huh? I mean, come on, somebody help me out here. I'm trying to preach up a cloud. Nothing can separate us from Him. And I'm telling you, all of this stuff is just simply making God in our image. Well, if you sin, brother, God's going to yank it back from you. Yeah, if you made up a God in your mind according to your own script, who's just like you, He would. But thank God He's not. Got to hurry. Notice number next. And I know everybody's expecting a P, but I'm going to throw you an I. (laughs) If you don't know the Word of God, you can't know the God of the Word. He's ultimately powerful. He's eternally personal. And He is infinitely large. He's infinitely large. Hey, no matter what your concept of God is, mark this down. It's not big enough. For He is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that you're able to ask or think. No matter what you think of God, it's not big enough. The psalmist says this. The psalmist says, Oh, magnify the Lord. You ever wonder, how can you make God any bigger? You can't. He's infinitely large. But I'll tell you what you can make bigger. Your concept of Him. We can't overdo it when it comes to high-selling God. You can't put out a spiritual resume that he can't meet. And friend, I just want to make much of our God and little of man because we are dust. We're worms. But son, he's good. He's big. He's large. He's powerful. He's personal. Psalmist says, oh, magnify the Lord. And I won't overdo it when it comes to magnifying God. Because I want to tell you something. One thing I don't have to worry about is getting to heaven one day. And the Lord putting His arm around me and said, Son, you did a pretty good job preaching, but one thing. You just made me look too good. You oversold me. You made me look too big. Get this. No danger of that happening. None. Because He's so big, there's no way we can magnify Him enough. 
because He's infinite. I mean, He spreads His dwelling throughout eternity. How can we make Him look too big? So in keeping with what Jesus said right here, let me just say this. Two things and I'm done. Errors, because that's what this is about. The old King James says, you do err. It's the word for error. You make a mistake. Can I say this? Every error, every life error that we make is unbiblical. Just mark it down. All errors are unbiblical. All errors are because we're living according to heresy, not the truth of God's Word. So errors, number one, are unbiblical. And guys, listen. We're on a mission at Grace Church to root that out of our lives. And I'll tell you, we all come full of them. I've still got them in my life. None of us have arrived. But we let God's Word speak to root out faulty thinking, faulty beliefs in order to bring them in line with what the Scripture says. But number next, I had to invent a word. Here's what I find about preaching and theology. Sometimes the human vocabulary, especially English, just won't contain it. So you got to make one up every now and then. So here we go. Not only is our errors unbiblical, but here's what errors cause. Errors cause the unbigging of God. Huh? Don't that say it pretty well? The unbigging of God. Now you just take any heresy you want to and you put it in that and plug it in this formula to see how it, how it works. Let's get back to what I've been picking on all day. The rabid, heretical belief that you can be saved today and lost tomorrow. Now, how does that make God look big or stupid? It makes Him look like a bumbling moron that don't know what we say He knows. Here's the position that that puts God in. It puts God in this position. Alright, I saved you today, Jerry. We're in a good relationship. Tomorrow you go and do something stupid. I love what Cliff Meyer says. He says every one of us is just one step away from stupidity. Because we are, aren't we? You don't have to go very far. I, won't, I don't have to deviate very far tomorrow to go to complete stupidity. But here, God saved you today, Jerry. You're all right. But tomorrow you take a step into stupidity. You know what that says if he's going to lose his salvation over that? Here's what God has to say. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jerry, I saved you yesterday, but I did not know you were going to do this. Why did you do this, Jerry? That blows everything. Jerry, hand me your card back. Give it back. I didn't know you were going to do this, Jerry. Let me tell you something. Our God is so big, son. When He died on that cross, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are under the blood of Jesus Christ. That means they're gone. He throws them behind His back. He hides them beneath the sea. He remembers them no more. How can that do anything to cause your relationship to terminate immediately? I'm telling you, false doctrine makes God look like an idiot. And hear me, Grace Church, we're in the business of magnifying Him. And the only way you magnify Him is when you know the Word of God. Because when you know the Word of God, then you'll know the God 
of the Word. Can I just commend Him to you today? He is good. He is great. He is bigger than your problems. He has plans for you that make the greatest pleasure you have on this planet seem like appendicitis in, com in comparison to it. Why in the world, if we know God's Word, would we not do anything but run in the direction of the God of the Word? Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your Word.